When this old world starts a getting me down And people are just too much for me to face I'll climb way up to the top of the stair And all my cares just drift right into space Peaceful as can be. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's Mark Faber here. At long last, the old babe is coming at you with an episode of my podcast, which I call Begging to Differ. It's been a while. My last podcast was on October the 25th, back in 2016, a full three months and almost a week ago. October the 25th, as you know, was two weeks prior to the November the 8th election. And like many Americans, I was uh, paying a whole lot of attention to what was going on. Truth be known, uh, maybe too much attention, too much of a diversion. But I was, and like many Americans, I was more than just a little bit disgusted with uh, the lead up to the election. And just with the way elections, particularly presidential elections in America, play out these days. The last two or three, I guess, maybe, maybe just the last two particular, but maybe the last three have all been uh, social media impacted elections, and uh, it seems to only be getting worse. But I'm like all of you, no matter kind of which side of this deal you fall on, the constant demonizing of the opponent, the seeming lack of constructive, hope-inducing, optimism-enhancing, truly proud of our democracy kind of sentiment that characterizes our elections, it, it eats at me. And I think it eats at all of us at our overall sense of well-being. And, and it just gets inside of us too many of us. Some people are able to stay detached. I hadn't been one of those. I sense maybe if you're listening to this, maybe you hadn't been one either. But it gets too much inside of us. And and uh, for good or ill, maybe more ill than good, it becomes uh, a negative thing in our lives, no matter the results. But then, and you know, that's just the process itself. But then the election happened, and and for me, the the unthinkable happened. Our country elected a president who uh, seems to appeal to the fears of angry white males. Not seems to he, he clearly does. It's just a statement of fact, not so much a value judgment. He, he appeals to the fears of angry white males, and and he ran a campaign uh, that exhibited clear evidence of 
misogyny, Islamophobia, characterized by blatant falsehoods. Many will say, to balance out, that the opponent, in this case, Ms. Clinton, has got a long history of falsehoods too. And they may be telling the truth when they say that. But certainly our current president uh, seemed to run and be elected with a seeming disregard for semblance of, of reality in a lot of ways. And so the election happened, and, and I woke up a little bit in grief, actually, on November the 9th, I don't mind saying, and I, I started to put together a podcast. And you'll be happy to know, I think, that I chose not to put it out into the world uh, for my tens upon tens of regular listeners, uh, mainly because as I reflected on what I've kind of written down, I realized, man, this is not really thoughtful. It's not helpful. It's not hopeful or not constructive. It's just one old guy spouting off his frustrations. And there's plenty of us doing that. And you don't need to waste your time listening to a podcast. that is just my, my stuff. That's not helpful. And really, all I could get out were like profane expressions of personal disgust with the then uh, new president-elect. And I thought, no, nah, that's not helpful. So I went dark in the podcast world. And I think you should thank me for that. No one needs to waste his or her time hearing the angst-ridden, reactionary, frustrated musings of an old, retired fart who is really not an expert on things politic. And so my stuff doesn't really need to be out there. The truth is there are plenty of well-informed, emotionally mature, resistant to what is going on, yet civil and articulate voices saying what needs to be said about the first 10 days of Mr. Trump's presidencies. My fears and my reactions at this moment are not really needed and, and I don't think would serve any helpful purpose. And I really mentioned the presidency and the swirling daily Twitter driven tempest that has characterized these first 10 days, simply to say that uh, one of the impacts that has been kind of on me has, has been this compelling urge to say something, but not so much to say something about Mr. Trump or, or what I, I might perceive or what the, the media might perceive as some of his real early misdeeds, but, but I've got this just compelling urge. I go to sleep thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. I drive down the road thinking about it, that, that somehow i got to look inside of myself and, and say something helpful to say something that is uh, carries the possibility of maybe triggering some encouragement or some courage or maybe uh, uh, give people like myself even and, and hopefully you who, who listen a desire to own and confront and, and maybe overcome some fears as opposed to just sitting around and moaning and complaining about what we think is, is wrong. 
and we could be wrong about what we think is wrong, although maybe not. But that doesn't matter. But then I've also sort of been driven to, to maybe try to figure out a way to say something about what I and we might do other than stay glued to news and social media to see what odd and crazy things might happen next. And, and, and really, you don't have to stay glued to social media and news channels like CNN or Fox, whatever your preference is, or NBC, ABC, or any number of them that are out there. You don't have to stay glued to these things. Just some, if you need to know what's going to happen and what has happened, not what's going to happen, but what has happened in any given day, uh, you'll find out. Certainly I will, but I, I must say I've spent way too much time. Uh, I just know I have kind of glued to my social media feed and, and to CNN, which is my choice uh, of news and, and NBC. I've just been spent too much time on that. Um, and so I, I want to say something that's good and helpful and hopeful. And uh, I think there's something inside of me that needs to come out. Uh, many of you who pay me the extreme honor and the compliment of taking the time to listen to my podcast know that I used to be uh, a pastor and a preacher. Uh, 17 years ago, I was a pastor in First Baptist Church, Marion, Arkansas. And uh, before that, I'd had several uh, ministry positions. And uh, for several years, I, it was my job to preach or teach multiple times in every single week. And I spent a great deal of time in preparation and try to hone my communication skills. And as I think back on those days of my life, I recall that my deepest desire, or certainly one of my deepest desires, was to always be an encourager. I knew enough and paid enough attention to my own journey in life and to the journey of uh, people that, that were in my church or a part of whatever I was doing, I paid enough attention to know that, man, for most people, life is a struggle. It's a battle. Even when things are really going well in your life, a lot of times, man, it's a struggle. And, uh, man, I've known people on all sides of the economic uh, spectrum to the filthy rich, to the people living paycheck to paycheck. And, and the ones I've gotten to know, it doesn't matter who you are, man, there's, there's battles to fight. And uh, there may be the appearance of everything going great and perfect and booming in your life. And, and we know better. We all know that man, it's a struggle. It's a struggle with children. Or, you know, things can be going perfect in life or appear to be perfect and we've been happy and joyous and free. And and, and then maybe a parent uh, starts the aging process and, and the sickness comes and you go through that long struggle of, of uh, watching a parent die or a child has a problem that just will not be solved. It could be an addiction issue emotional issue or a health issue. Businesses come and go and ebb and flow. And, and, and man, 
I don't have to describe all the struggles there are, but they're just struggles. And I always knew that every time I ever stood in a pulpit anywhere to talk to any size of a group of people, anywhere from 10 or 15 or 20 to sometimes 500 or more, that I was looking into the eyes of people for whom life was a struggle. And I saw my role as to be a kind of guy who somehow, some way, could dig deep and come up with something that is inspirational and hope-inducing and courage-inducing. And that really drove me. And uh, I can honestly say uh, I didn't always succeed in that regard. I recently moved uh, after I retired uh, from my second career and and uh, I was cleaning out some stuff and I had some drawers full of old sermons. I started reading them and and I thought, man, this I know that's my handwriting or my typing. I remember saying this stuff, but I think, man, that that stuff is not really where I am today. So I think the good news is I hope I've grown some, but also know that even in all that stuff that I wrote that I want to tell you right now, I actually trashed about a thousand sermons that I'd written uh, because I thought they don't say what I want to say today, even though I know at the time I meant them to be words of encouragement and hope and grace and, uh, and meaning to people's lives. And many times they in fact were, but uh, I said all that to say, man, I just, I love the idea of, of giving somebody some hope and some courage and uh, maybe even talking myself into living more hopefully and more courageous. But it's an odd thing. Since since the inauguration, I keep weaving back to that because it so dominates our, our, our scene today. But since the inauguration on January the 20th, I've just been overwhelmed with this feeling that I used to feel routinely when I was a pastor. And it's like something is burning inside of me and I just have to get it out and I want it so badly to be a helpful hopeful good peacemaking faith building courage inducing word uh, for anybody who take the time to listen so that's a long 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 introduction to try to say this I've got this thought that is just inescapable. And it's kind of come to me through some self-talk. Do you ever do that? I think the older I get, the more I uh, talk to myself. I mean, uh, there's times I actually do get in front of a mirror and have a little chat with who I see there that I think is a reflection of me. And I do self-talk like this. I'll say, Mark, if you were charged with responsibility of giving the message this week anywhere, what would you need to hear? Or what would you want to hear? Which is kind of a strange way to say this, but it's like, as I think about what I need to hear and what I want to hear, it actually colors what I would want to say if I was actually going to be given the message. And so thankfully in our podcast world, you don't have to have a uh, congregation in front of you 
11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning anywhere, you know, to, to get in a pulpit. You just break your microphone out, stick it into your computer, and say what's on your heart. And that's what I'm doing. And I know that somebody will listen to this, my sister, probably my wife. And if two or three more, or four or five of you do, and we can have some chats about it, well, I hope, I hope we'll both be strengthened by it. So here's just, just one thing that's on my mind. I usually try to have, you know, three and four point messages. Today, I, I got one thing I want to say, but I'm going to take about 15 or 20 more minutes to say it. And the one thing I just want to say, and the one thing I think I need to hear myself is this truth still matters truthfulness is a way of living that is really 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 important it's crucial truth still matters that's what i want to talk about for a few minutes in this sixth episode of begging to differ Begging to differ may be an appropriate title today because, man, we're living in what many have described as a post-truth society. And I get it. You think about this, man. Good people, good journalists, good organizations do a lot of fact-checking during um, elections, and the results are troubling. Now, let's face it, it is true that what a guy said or a lady said 35 or 40 years ago could be different from what he or she says today, and there's good reasons for that. It's because people grow, people change, people do evolve, people have a, a growing awareness of things and so it's true, people do change their minds. So it's sometimes not fair when fact-checking goes on with politicians giving speeches and we hold them to something they said, you know, 30 or 40 years ago and they're saying something different now. That doesn't mean they're just a bald-faced liar. I get that. But a lot of times, something someone said last week and they're saying something different this week or something someone you know, tweets out this morning when confronted about it this afternoon, denies it, you think, man, we might have a bit of a truth-telling problem here. And it could be that we are living in a post-truth society, which I think that means some have said there are those in leadership who feel like truth really doesn't matter anymore. And uh, I don't really... By, by that. Uh, good people doing fact-checking and the results of fact-checking, no matter which side of it, even if they're a little bit jaded, the, the fact-checkers and they're thinking and finding what they want to find, there's enough fact-checking going on by good people that the results of it are troubling. And it, what it tells us is that in American politics anyway, there's a whole lot of lying going on. And there'd be a whole lot of lying going on, I'm confident, even if the election this past November hadn't turned out the way it did. There's a whole lot of lying going on in politics at, at all levels. 
And uh, I'm convinced that's not good. And I, I'm not really here to talk about that so much as to talk about what it says to me about how I, I need to be living my own life. And, and I think you may, if you're listening to this, kind of want to live your own life as well. Now, one of my favorite books that I mention often is a book by Frederick Bigner called Telling the Truth, the Gospel as Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. If you have not read Frederick Bigner, you simply must. He's a wonderful writer and a tremendous teller of truth. Another of his books that you'll find really meaningful in addition to telling the truth is Telling Secrets. And it's part of his own personal story and journey about his father's suicide and his childhood. And it is a spellbinder of the power of vulnerability and telling his own personal and family secrets, which happen to be the truth, albeit what some would call ugly truth. And yet we could also say, freeing truth. But anyway, back to uh, telling the truth. The gospel is tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. I think I read it, man, like in 1981 or two, somewhere in there. And it's, it was a hard read. And it still is to this day. It's, it has a poetic style that sometimes I don't even get a lot of it. But there's enough in there that I do get about truth-telling. And there's this one compelling line that has stuck with me for 30 five or 36 years. I say it to myself often. But Bigner said in this book, in the context of telling a story about a guy being at uh, Yale for the Lyman Beecher Lecture Series, uh, he looked into a mirror and said something to this effect. It is the task of the minister to, quote, look into the dark heart of things and say what is there. Think about that. Look into the dark heart of things and say what is there. That's what truth-telling is sometimes, to say what is. And I want to tell you, you know, there have been days in my life when I actually chose not to say what was there. I chose to deny the truth about my own life as opposed to look into the mirror and say the truth. And denial of a known truth about a person's life or a person's context or journey or marriage or habits, man, you know, denial can be a ticket to an early death. You think about how many people have died early by simply refusing to pay attention to uh, some symptom in their body that had they just said, you know, I've got this symptom and I ought to go check it out. And it could have been the early detection of a cancer or the early detection of some uh, other health problem like diabetes or something like that, that had they not been in denial and refusing to confront the pain or confront the unease or the disease. They could have caught it, faced it, dealt with it, added some quality uh, 
time and years to their lives. And that can certainly be true with some of our habits, like smoking, and drinking, and eating, and that sort of thing, where, where we get in denial about the truth of something that we know in our hearts when we look into the dark heart of things needs to be addressed. Well, like I said, denial of the truth can be a ticket to one's early death. And if not a ticket to a literal early grave or crematorium, denial or truth evasion can certainly lead to deep darkness of soul and to an estrangement from what is truly meaningful or a divorce from vitality. And, and maybe denial, we could probably say, of truth can sometimes lead to a death that is actually worse than death. We call it a walking death, living death. You've seen those people. You've known those people. You've been that person. I know I have. Where I was in every way living, I guess, still breathing air, marking time, marking days on the calendar alive, but living kind of a joyless Pointless, meaningless, depressed, worse than death kind of existence. And I'm not proud of that, but it's the truth. I've had days like that in my life, and I'm grateful that they're few and far between now. And I can't really take a lot of pride in that, but I do feel like that the joyful life that I get to live is in large measure connected to the grace of being able to be truthful with myself. Maybe more so than those days when I'm not truthful, like a liar. So looking oneself in the mirror and taking that deep, deep gaze into one's deepest inner self and telling the truth about one sees is, I'm convinced, kind of the best way to experience joyful freedom, hopeful courage, and will to maybe partner up with a loving and accepting God so that we can make meaningful change in our lives and hopefully encourage change in the lives of others. Though we certainly can't change anybody. Uh, And if you think you can, that's one thing you need to change is your thinking because you can't. But, you know, here's a question. On a personal level, forget national politics. Forget whatever angst or even delight you might have about who's the current leader of our country. Forget whatever anxiety you have about the the most daily breaking news that, that makes you go, what? Again? This? How can this be? You know, the end of the world is coming. Those kind of feelings. Uh, Forget that and start asking this question on a personal level. How does truth and truthfulness and truth-telling serve me well? How does truth and self-truth-telling serve you well? What it can do is it can help you put the focus on what you can do, what you can control, 
to get better at things you need to get better at. Man, this past Sunday, uh, I was in the place where I go to church in Fayetteville, Vintage Fellowship. And we have two pastors, uh, Rob and Vanessa Byersey, and the most two of the most delightful human beings I've ever met. And I've had the pleasure of taking a trip with them uh, in early October and getting it on better, and, and I feel like they're true friends and such a great blessing in my life. And we had a tremendous service. I'll say something more about what we're doing in a few minutes. But, man, after the service, I was just so inspired, so lifted up, so encouraged by some things that I can do and we can do as a church to help with a very real problem in northwest Arkansas that I went back and I, I hugged my pastor's wife and and I haven't even told my pastor, uh, the male pastor yet, that I hugged his wife and I, and I just was so warm. I reached up and kissed her on the cheek. I didn't go straight for the mouth or anything like that. And there was nothing, you know, in my heart, there was nothing bad about it. And I know in Vanessa's too, but just so overcome with love and hopefulness born from uh, hearing a social scientist talk about the homeless problem in Northwest Arkansas and what we could do about it. And one of the things that I said to Vanessa, because we're both kind of troubled about, about some of the things President Trump is doing and, uh, and discouraged in many ways. But, but it, for me, it was like I hugged her and I gave her a kiss on the cheek. And I said, man, we, we got to quit focusing on what's over there and, make ourselves focus on what is here that we can be doing. That's the way we need to go through these days. And uh, I think there's something to that. I'll talk more about it in a minute. But I want to give you another uh, story kind of out of my own life about how truth-telling made an impact, a lasting impact, and, uh, and triggered some action on my part that I think has contributed to some true quality of living that I experienced till this very day. It was actually about 1981 or 80. I'd gotten out of seminary in 1979. I'd gone to be a pastor of a little church in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and in the country with these wonderful people, a place called Richwoods. And every one of these ladies in that church could cook like a queen's. Chef, I mean, they were amazing cooks of country cooking. And, of course, they loved their pastor. And we'd have all these potlucks and everything like that. We'd eat like kings. And and I was pretty sedentary and, you know, kind of getting involved and sitting down all week doing a lot of studying and, you know, driving in the car. I wasn't really doing much. And this buddy of mine, who was my actual college roommate, and he was at a, a church in South Arkansas, and he'd come up to spend, he and his wife came to spend the day with us, we had lunch, and we kind of went on a walk out in the country there, just talking and thinking about our lives and, and talking with other. and my friend, who's my best friend to this very day, even though we don't get to spend as much time together as we'd like because of the busyness of life, or maybe the business of his life now, he's still working, I'm retired, but, but his name is Bruce Tippett, and we were roommates in college, and and uh, went to seminary together and studied together. And, uh, man, and we loved one another like brothers. And uh, so we were walking out down this road, and he said something to me very abrupt. And, and we'll do that with one another. And he said to me, you know something, Mark? You're getting fat, and you need to take better care of yourself. And I'm telling you, if you 
choose to say to somebody in this world, you're getting fat. You better be real close to him. Because as close as I was to Bruce and am to this very day, still made me a little bit mad and maybe a little bit resentful and a little bit somewhat ashamed. You know, and I'm thinking, who does he think he is to tell me that I'm fat? But then I remembered Bigner's words to look into the dark heart of things and tell the truth. And I realized that whether it was kind or not, and it really was kind, or whether it was gentle or not, and maybe it wasn't very gentle, it was least it was at least very deeply loving. And as abrasive as it might have felt, my friend, my college roommate, had the courage to look into the dark heart of things and look me in the eye and tell me the truth. And it was just the truth that I was doing some unhealthy things and the way I ate and didn't exercise. And believe it or not, I started an exercise routine of jogging that became, for the most part, a life habit. And, uh, and really for about 37 years, with some brief chapters where I wasn't as disciplined as others, but for the most part, for 37 years, I've had a pretty consistent exercise routine, and I've been able to maintain a modicum of, of a better height-to-weight ratio for some guy my, my size. And, uh, and so I just say that to say, here's an example of a friend who was brave enough and trusted our love enough to lovingly state an uncomfortable yet very real truth to me that was able to translate into a lifetime of practice that has paid great dividends. And I'll tell you, every time I ever go to a doctor, I'm 66 and a half years old. And for 37 years, every time I've ever gone to the doctor and had my blood pressure taken or something like that, the nurse or the uh, medical person will say as soon as I read it, good. My blood pressure is like, it, it knocks that sleeve off my arm. It's so strong and so stout. And I, and I believe it's largely in measure to the fact that a friend of mine told me the truth. Now, there may be some other genetic factors and different things like that where I'm just blessed with, with not having blood pressure problems. But I'm telling you, I think it's attributed to the fact that a brother told me the truth and, uh, and what I realized is, looking back on it, reflecting on, on a pretty blessed life, is that good health, for the most part, is our choice to make. And good health, I mean, I, I get it. There are things that may just come upon people uh, totally, you know, unexpected and unexplainable. And, and I don't, I won't try to explain them because I don't understand it, how good, healthy people can just fall sick and die you know, or get dread disease just overnight. Uh, and people that make good choices can all of a sudden, the thing's going great, and then boom, it's just a game over. I don't get it. Uh, someday I will. But but for the most part, when there are exceptions, good health is a choice 
and it requires facing truth, stating truth, acting on truth. And so a question then for you would be, forget Washington for a few minutes and start asking questions. What's my truth? What is the truth that if I had the courage to name it and own it and act on it could be life-changing for me or for some others? Those are good questions to ask. What's your truth? that if you named it and owned it and acted on it, could be life-changing for you and others. I can sit here all day where I am today in Jackson, Mississippi, on the ninth floor of a Hilton Hotel looking out across a beautiful city on a 70-degree day on January the 30th and say all things, all kinds of things that I think need to be said and true truth statements that need to be stated in Washington at the White House. And I'm not going to get to say those. But I can look hard in the mirror and make some truth statements that I can act upon that will make a difference in my life and maybe some other people's this very day. But back to that presidential thing. I want you to know, man, from the bottom of my heart, I do not want to demonize our president. It sure seems like that his post-truth, politically incorrect style, where really facts are met with what Kellyanne calls alternative facts, and where the fear of others and it seems like the fear, especially of non-white others and non-male others and non-American others and especially brownish others and Muslim others or gay and lesbian others or pregnant others or whatever. It seems like the fear of the other is driving him. And if I'm, I want to be wrong on that. I, I truly do. If I'm missing it, I want to be told that I'm missing it, and I want to I want to be demonstrated that I'm missing it. But it seems to me like that's what's driving the at-large politic now, or at least presidential politic, is is alt facts and fear the others, and and a style that seems to be wrecking daily havoc in our world. That's a truth. But here's a truth I'm wanting to do is, or, or let me just say that seems like a truth to me, and I think it's true, but here's something else. Okay, let's say it's true that this is really chaotic, and it's not serving a good purpose. Here's a question. What truth do I need to face and embrace and act accordingly. What truth do I need to face in light of what I see as chaos in our leadership? Well, let me answer my question. Here's a couple of truths that I'm trying to face. And then you can apply this to yourself 
as you need to. And here's the truth. I think this is the truth. I'm pretty confident it's the truth. No good is served if I waste energy on a leader in Washington with whom I disagree and will probably never meet all the time ignoring the nurturing of relationships with an unseen yet ever-present and all-loving God. I don't think I need to have my head in the sand. I'm like you. I think I need to be an informed citizen. But I, it is true. I got to figure out a way to balance or take from the energy I would spend in angst over decisions of a leader with whom I disagree so that I can put more focus and expend energy nurturing a relationship with an unseen yet ever-present and all-loving God who is never taken by surprise. I think that's the truth. And I can be a better person by paying more attention to quietness, to solitude, to meditation, focusing on that which is truly eternal, helpful, and joyful, and meaningful, and developing a relationship with loving God. And then the same is true. If I'm wasting energy and time trolling on Facebook and Twitter, excessively tuned into what's coming out of Washington, could be that I'm ignoring a relationship with a lady named Janie, with whom I've been faithfully married 42 and a half years. Why do I want to get all caught up in something I can't control or influence when I have something right in front of me most days that I can impact with a more loving, more attentive, kind, more listening, more available, more present, more encouraging presence with her life. That's the truth. I can make my 42 and a half year marriage better by being a better me and spending energy on me and being present to her. And I think that's got the potential have more impact than exercising angst about him up at the White House. And the same is true with my sons and their spouses and their friends and my seven grandchildren. And I got a lot to live for. I got a lot of people that are counting on me being a decent, present human being in their life. And one of the truths that I can face is that I can do better by being here and present to what's in front of me that I love and care about and want to nurture than what else I could put my energy on. And you get the point. The same is true. Instead of being so full of angst about Washington, I know that I can make choices, and this is true. 
to be more attentive to my neighbors in northwest Arkansas whom I'm called to know and to love. I'm confused about so much stuff in that ancient Bible. But one thing I'm truly, I think, not confused about is this. Where when asked what was the most important commandment, Jesus tricked those who asked him. No, he didn't trick them. He just came with the truth. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not confused about this. Whatever else it means to be a good human, a good Christian, a good person, a good spiritual human being in this world, it has to mean love God whom we don't really understand, but we know enough to know it's safe to say God is loving, although mysterious. God is love. And what it means to love God is to love a neighbor. Now, my church has been doing the neatest thing. Rob and Vanessa have been leading us to love our neighbor by inviting some of our neighbors to come to our services and talk to us about what it's like to be them in our world. And recently we've had a, a molecular biologist from the University of Arkansas speak at our church who grew up in Iraq and uh, came here to study and get his PhD and now teaches at the university. He's a practicing Muslim and he spoke at our Christian church and told his story of what it's like to live in this nation as a Muslim. He's our neighbor and we're called loving. God has an amazing time to get to know one of those neighbors. And, and also in my church, we've been involved in helping uh, resettle a refugee family from Iraq. And, uh, and, and getting to know those neighbors has been an amazing thing for me and for our congregation and been so helpful. And it's been a meaningful thing to get to know a neighbor like that. And then uh, after uh, having a Muslim neighbor come to our services and, and having an opportunity to meet some others in our town and, and treat them as my neighbor and try to figure out ways that my faith could be lived out in love and compassion toward them. Our, our pastor invited uh, two transgender persons to come and share what it's like to be a transgender human being in Northwest Arkansas at this time. And their stories were powerful. They were so brave to tell their stories and be very vulnerable and uh, take risk with a group of people that didn't know how we'd react. And uh, But they're in our community. And as in any community in our world, there, there are significant numbers of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community. And they're our neighbors. And uh, Jesus didn't say, love your straight neighbors or your white neighbors. He said, love your neighbor. And if your neighbor happens to be different from you, which he or she is, you're still called to love them. And, and that's the truth. And, and so it's opening my mind so much in this recent series to being aware of my neighbor. And in spite of the, what seemed like dreadful decisions, painful decisions, potentially damning decisions that are being made in Washington. And if you see it differently, then that's okay too. 
in spite of the good decisions that are being made up there that really don't impact me. It really does not take away from the fact that here's this truth. I can, no matter what's going on up there, still here, love my neighbor, my Muslim neighbor, my LGBTQ neighbor, my homeless neighbor, my hungry neighbor, my Spanish-speaking neighbor, and there's so many others in my world that I'm called to love and care about and get to know. And so, man, I got a full agenda. And that's just the truth. It's truth, man. Here's a truth for me that I'm trying to say and say again and again to myself so I can get through these days with hope and courage and and not with angst and bitterness and resentment. And that is, I've been saying to myself, Mark, get your eyes off of Trump and Washington and get your eyes on the pain and suffering and loneliness and need for friendship that is right in front of you. That's the truth. Loving God, loving neighbor, is the high calling of every one of us. An election, the results of which I loathe, really doesn't exempt me or any of us from a much higher calling to love mercy, practice mercy, to walk humbly with God, however we understand God, and to love a neighbor to be a peacemaker and to be humble and to live the undying hope that love wins truth wins and without being mean or snarky or addicted to meanness or snarkiness or responding to it what I can do no matter what goes on anywhere in the world what I can do, and this is the truth, I can be on the side of love and truth. It's my choice. I hope you'll pray for me that I can make the kind of choice to side with love and with truth. And I'll say the same kind of prayer for you. I'll be back at you real soon, maybe as early as this Thursday with another podcast. All the best. Thanks, 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 thanks for taking these few minutes to listen to my rambling about living the truth. It's peaceful as can be.